Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, this is Kathy Valentine, and you're listening to Tobin Tonight. I'm here uh, with Kathy Valentine. Uh, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you took our call, especially during this time of COVID. I guess the first real question, because I do want to get into about your book a bit later, but the dying question for me is coming out with a book during COVID, like, was that kind of your decision? Did someone kind of be like, you know, have your arm and go like, come on, yeah, write this book. You got to put it out now. <laughs> no, uh, up until February, we were. You know, we assumed that everything was going to be fine. I mean, the book release, I, when, you, when you have a publisher, they have a schedule that they stick with. You know, they know what books are going to come out when. Uh, they have a cycle. So they couldn't, there wasn't an option of putting it off. Because if they put mine off, they would have had to put someone else's off. And so, um, but up until like probably mid-February, we thought, you know, we would have a normal release and I would do a book tour. And I started having doubts around March. I remember writing saying, do you think my book tour is going to happen? And they were like, well, sure. Why not? Why not? And I'm like, I don't know. And when South by Southwest here in Austin canceled, I think that got a lot of people's attention because that's such a huge uh, deal for the city where I live. And when they canceled, a lot of I mean, I think looking back, I think they were very, they, they really um, showed a lot of leadership in canceling the festival. We had to cancel my book tour, but keep the book release. And it took a little while to get some bearings, but I hired a publicist and UT Press, that's the University of Texas Press, who published my book. They had an in-house publicist. It was surprising how much we could do virtually. And it's, it's continued on. I mean, I'm just now launching all the things in Canada. So it's still ongoing and it's, it's been as, as best as it can be. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are getting the, the virtual side of things now of getting them down, like down put. Like I know it's always been around with like YouTube, uh, Facebook, social media to kind of like advertise with stuff. But it seems like now with say Instagram Live, Facebook Live, more people are kind of uh, taking the advantage of that, like things that you probably maybe second guess in the past, like, gee, is like, we can do it this way. And it's kind of works like everything, of course, has its pros and cons, you know, in a pandemic where just say you can't actually meet people face to face, shake their hands, sign a book. The way like the next yeah. best thing is saying, like, if you buy my book here, I will do a virtual meeting with you, or I will do this for you. And you're like, well, that's great. Like, I'm in the comfort of my own home. Like, and it's another way to, you know, get fans involved and just show like, okay, I'm, st- I'm I still care. It's not like I said, no, I'm not doing any of it. So I, I do think yeah. it's kind of interesting. The virtual world sometimes is beneficial in a pandemic or a crisis. I think it's here to stay, you know, not necessarily the pandemic, but the, yeah. the whole virtual stuff. I think a lot of people 
have adjusted to not going into an office every day. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of meetings that, you know, it, it's, and a lot of the performances that so many musicians are, you know, live from their living room or, you know, I think people enjoy that aspect. I don't think it'll, it'll take the place of concerts and live oh, shows, no. but it, I think it's going to stay. I'm, I'm guessing by the time this will go up, you will be after celebrating a birthday. What is your plans with, even with the pandemic in, in a birthday? Like, is it going to be like a virtual birthday? Are you going to have uh, like a few of your friends over and be like, Hey, like you were my, you were my close friends. We're going to have a good time here. A lot of it depends on how, if, if things start getting contained a little more, if it, if it was today, I would not do anything, which is a shame because I, I traditionally celebrate birthdays. That's something I enjoy. I use it as an excuse to get all my friends together. Some people from different parts of my life that get to meet or hang out. So I, I usually do celebrate. I think this year, I don't think I will be unless it's a little bit more contained. And then I could maybe doing, you know, something else. Depends how cold it is. You know, I've got a great patio, but I don't know if it's too cold to go out there. So I'll just wait and see. You were born in Austin, Texas. You were raised by, you know, a single mother. Uh, what was life like growing up in Texas at this time, and especially like only child, single mom? Like, can you tell me a little bit of the struggles, basically what your, your childhood was like at this time? Well, I'm 60. I'm above 60, actually, and which means that I got to be a teenager in the 70s, which I think is a pretty good trade-off for being older now because being a, a teenager in the 70s was really pretty cool. It was, I mean, great music. Texas was a great place, Austin in particular, the rest of the state, but Austin was great. We had a great music scene here. The University of Texas is based here. It's the state capital. So it's, it's always been a thriving city. My mom was a single mom working full time raising me, going to school full-time. So she had her hands full, plus she was pretty young. Her and my dad divorced when I was about three, and he wasn't a part of my life, and it was a source of a lot of sadness and pain for me that I think kind of sat inside me and, and probably still is to some degree. I, I didn't really feel like he cared about me. I found out much, 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 much later that he did care, but he just wasn't very good at showing it, I guess, or dealing with his own stuff or whatever. But my mom was a, very much a free spirit. She didn't parent me at all. There were boundaries in my adolescence. There was no rules or consequences. She very much, I mean, someone might call it feral, Someone else might call it free range. It just depends how you look at it. But basically, I felt like it was my job to take care of myself. And I wasn't that equipped to do that. So I went down a lot of not so great paths. I ended up drinking too soon and getting used to that as a way of coping. I ended up doing drugs way too soon and got used to that. And uh, music pretty much saved me. Music gave me some structure. It gave me a dream. Uh, besides all the usual things that music does for people, which, you know, kind of, I mean, music connects us. It makes us feel our feelings. It takes us back to places that we remember fondly. And it can help us not feel our feelings if we feel out of place and stuff. Music is just 
I think for everybody, it plays a, a central role in, in everyone's life. So I was no exception to that. But when I became a musician, being a, that really changed my life. And I loved writing about that in my memoir. It's, and it's very much a, a coming-of-age story about a young, very lost, very messed-up girl who kind of finds herself through music and then goes on to lose herself. And when I say herself, I'm talking about me. Yeah. I, I, I like how you kind of gave us a kind of a full story there because there's so much to unpack in that. But I, I kind of want to go off the aspect of, you know, when you're saying about, I guess, getting into drugs and alcohol and like, you know, in the 70s. I mean, like to me, and I, and I mean this with no like offense or anything, but I'm just still like, geez, when I'm watching documentaries on the 70s, if you were about to tell me you've never took a sip of beer or never took a drug, I'd be like, I, I would just look at you and be like, come on, it was, it was the 70s, are you kidding me? It was I, a very different yeah, time, yeah. yeah. I, but I, I want to get into that aspect too, because where you're mentioning about, you know, having a single mom and you're mentioning about your father not always being there and all the emotions that go with that. Like, how did music kind of play this part in you getting interested in it? Because I know for someone like myself, I've never really picked up a guitar, but like I always kind of wanted to try that or be interested in music, but sometimes you look at a famous singer that, you know, creates a path for you. Sometimes it's a song that you're like, geez, I could write a song like that if I really tried. So what kind of got you down that road of music? I think I was a little musical, but I had, I mean, I had always been a rock and roll fan from the time I was probably, and I, I write about, you know, loving, like, top 40 bubblegum music and then hearing cream hearing sunshine of your love and how it kind of gave me a whole different context for what music and how it affected me and from that point on i always loved so many different kinds of music but i ended up going to a school that was it was basically a commune it was a, a commune in the woods okay. and it was a free school not accredited but you could learn whatever you wanted to learn. And I went and had the option to pick up guitar. And when I did, I felt like a connection. I, I felt like I knew that I was always going to play the instrument. But the thing that's interesting was that it, even though I loved rock and roll and loved all these bands, it didn't really occur to me then, like, oh, I'm playing guitar. So is all the, so every band I like has a guitar player. Maybe I should join a band. What did that for me was, uh, going to England. My mom is English. She was an expat. And we went to see her mother, my grandmother, for Christmas in 1973. And I saw for the first time in my life, I saw a, a woman, a female rock star. And it was Susie Quattro. I'd never seen that. All the bands I loved were guys. And uh, I'd never seen, and not only was she I mean, she was just one of the bands. She was playing bass and she was the front person and she had the same clothes and the same hair and the same attitude. And I had just never seen that. And that changed everything. I don't know how many people's lives get changed at their grandparents' house. Yeah. But for me, I came back from England very driven and with a purpose. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be in a band. And I want to find, I want to find girls. I want to do it with people like me. That's what I wanted. I, for some reason, I didn't want to go join a bunch of guys. I wanted to find, I wanted to find friends, like people like me, and do it with them. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Like, and I like how you brought in there about, you know, how many times did your life change at your grandparents' house? I guess, I guess it depends on the story, right? Like, you don't want to come in yeah. and be like, listen, 
we went to visit your grandparents and we got bad news. I mean, at least this was good news. It was inspirational. Yeah. But I do like that you brought in, of course, creating almost like this all-female band. And so, like, again, seeing an inspiration like Susie, you know, even when you compare it to the kids today, when they grow up, like someone might look at an Ed Sheeran and say like, geez, like he was singing on the streets and now he's singing world tours. Kids that are involved that are like white kids that are like, you know, we're like, oh, I can never be a rapper and looking at yes. Eminem or something. And you're like, well, geez, if he's doing it, like we have, I think someone from Detroit named NF and that's who he kind of looked up to. And it's just weird to me in a way, because as I get older, I'm like, I grew up with Eminem and I was like, geez, there's going to be no one else. And then today's kids that are like 16 are like, what are you talking about? Eminem's old school. Like NF is the new best thing. And I'm like, wow, like, okay. It's always someone has to start a trend somewhere. And I look at it as if to say there's got to be bands, I'm saying, even in the 90s or even during the 80s when you were starting the all-female group with the Go-Go's and when you started getting the top of the charts. There had to be people out there that were like, geez, look what they're doing. That's an all-female band. Here I am with like three other guys. I want to be like them. So when you hear these stories, I'm sure there are people who tell you, you know, that you were an inspiration to them or the Go-Go's. Like, do you almost feel... I'm not going to say a sense of like uh, an achievement, but almost like, well, I'm glad I could do that for you or I paved the way for acts like yourselves. Yeah, I think it's, a, I, I like to just say it's really about visibility. And the shame of it is that, you know, Susie Quattro wasn't a big rock star in America, but the people that knew about her that were young girls like me, I mean, Joan Jett became Joan Jett because yeah. of Susie Quattro. And when I went to England in 70, I think 76, to, with my mom another time, there was tons of girls. Like I had to twist my friend's arms to play an instrument in Austin. But in England, there was lots of girls my age playing and because of Susie. And it was, it's, so, it's so much about visibility. And I think it's a shame of more females in the 70s and even in the 60s knew that there was other women doing that it would have inspired them more because now you have YouTube and you have the internet. I mean, there was women starting big bands in the 40s and, and stuff and, and 50s. And there was, you know, now I know about Sister Rosetta Tharp and many uh, Memphis Minnie. And, and in the, I didn't know about Fanny. Fanny had a, a hit record and were touring with people and Bowie was a fan and there was all these women doing it, but they weren't visible. You know, we didn't have the internet. And I think how many more girls might have started bands. I was just lucky to see Susie and it made me want to do it. But that's just a long way of answering your question, which is yes, the Go-Go's were quite visible. We were, we came up when MTV was getting started. So we were on television. We we're playing a lot, but not your young girls aren't going to be at the, the local club. Yeah. You know, the 13 year old isn't going to go to the nightclub in Atlanta and see the hot <laughs> new band from LA. And we weren't on the radio at first either. So TV did a lot for us. And yes, I think visibility is key. And I think it's across the board. I think, you know, a young girl who's interested in maybe isn't interested in a traditional supposedly female thing and then she sees a big article on some women in tech you know soft writing software or code and stuff and all of a sudden it's like oh i could do that too so yeah i think i think it's just like you're talking about visibility seeing it you know can just open all kinds of possibilities and i'm proud that the go-go's did that for people too 
No, I, I, I really love your answer there because it, it kind of spans off of what I was saying. When, when you were saying like you got, I guess, luck and just seeing your idol kind of over in England and yeah, like the rest of the world don't know maybe about her, but you get the chance to see this and it kind of changed your whole life. Like I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, what MTV brought in that sense. Like again, it's around the 80s. Uh, now, I wasn't watching a lot of MTV because I'm a 90s child, but we did have mm -hmm. much music up in Canada. And like acts mm -hmm. like the Bare Naked Ladies even said, like that kind of got them into music and exposure. So I'm looking at a standpoint of kind of with the punk aspect of we had uh, Avril Lavigne. And, you know, in Canada, she's kind of like a, an icon, you know, a princess, basically. But you could go to other parts of the world. And if there was no much music, there was no MTV, they'd be looking at you like, never heard of her. Who are you talking about? Now, did you mean this girl? Like, we've got one in Germany. That's a German Avril Lavigne. And you're like, no, but the exposure to all of it. Like, when you get older and you do your research, like, I remember watching Robin on MTV and I was like, oh, geez, like, that's a great singer. And then when you find out later that she's not even from North America, she's from over, I think it's like Sweden or somewhere. And you're like, I wouldn't have known, but it didn't make a difference. I was exposed. I'm a fan. So... Yeah. What you were saying, like MTV bringing in a brand new audience to you, like you're thinking maybe, okay, the US market, even the Canada market, okay, we know you, but you go over maybe Japan or Germany and there's people like, I want to be just like her because I've seen her on TV and she gave me a message that says, I can do this. And I think that's really interesting. Now, I want to get into, of course, some of your inspirations or musical acts that I believe you said that you enjoy or kind of inspired to be, like you mentioned about Blondie, the Ramones. Tell me what made them stick out to you. Like, was it just a style? Was it kind of like, because you were kind of heavily, as I read, you were a bit of a punk, a punk rock person, correct? I started out just being, a, you know, a little rock and roller. I mean, yeah, yeah. My, my, the bands I loved when I was a teenager were, David Bowie and, and Mark Bolan, T-Rex and The Faces and The Who and Zeppelin and The Stones and The Beatles. And I liked a lot of really bluesy. I liked Cream. I liked Humble Pie. So I, I was really from the kind of, you know, but I always loved Motown and, and R&B and, and a lot of other things too. But that was my, my main music was rock and roll. When I started playing guitar, because those were the bands I looked up to, when I decided I wanted to be yeah. in a band, I thought, I thought, well, I'm going to have to be as good as Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton. I, I, I was playing the guitar, and I, it didn't occur to me that I could even try to do it until I was really, really good. And I just thought this was going to be a off because I'll start doing bands and everything, but that's a lot of practicing and a lot of work to get to where they are. I was also of an age that when punk rock started becoming visible and Texas wasn't the first in line to, you know, to be hip to punk rock. I mean, I was lucky because again, I was in England and I started seeing for myself, I started saying, you know, I'd go out and see punk rockers and I'm like, hmm. And then I started liking the music, you know, I, I really thought the, the, the Sex Pistols were great and I liked a lot of those bands and I decided to come home and start a punk band because I thought I don't have to wait till I can play like Jimmy Page. I, I can do this now. Johnny Ramone just knows bar chords and I can, I can do that. Yeah. And so... I, besides liking the music, it gave me access to chasing the dream seemed a little closer because these bands were on tour, they were making records, 
and it was my music. It was my age. That's I, that's what was. But I never was like a a, a tried diehard punk rocker. I mean, I had a short haircut at some point, short spiky haircut. But I and I liked a lot of the fashion. But I was I would never fully identify. And pretty quickly, the stuff that I liked lent was more in the melodic area, like okay. Elvis Costello okay. and Nick Lowe and Blondie and you know before like there was a while where new wave was all of it whether you were elvis or whether you were the pistols it was all new wave and then it started dividing more and new wave was more of kind of like the more kind of pop end of it and then there was hardcore punk i was just really about the songs and the bands and not really identifying with who i was you know i it didn't affect my 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 uh, image anyway and when i first moved to la uh, it was the scene was very inclusive you didn't have to have you know safety pins all over your clothes and crazy hair and all ripped you didn't have to look like a hardcore punk yeah. to go see you could look like anybody and go like a punk band if you look at it, most of the audience shots from from back then it's a real mishmash of people it's not like everybody's looking hardcore yeah, like the, and the same, same way. Yeah, and you could look hardcore and go have fun at a rockabilly show. It was very inclusive. It was just a scene about music and being young and being out there and just like most organic scenes. I think it's just they just sprout up and if you're in if you're in that age where you're just out every night, you know, in the clubs and checking out the new bands, it's just it's a lot of fun. You mentioned of course going to LA uh, and I kind of want to bring this up just so people get a little bit more of a, an ima uh, imagine it a little bit more, get the image in their mind. But like, this is at 19, I read that you go to LA. So at 19, yeah. for me, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm doing after high school. Am I going to Memorial University here in Newfoundland? Am I going up away somewhere in Canada? At 19, you're basically saying, I'm out of Austin. I'm out of here. I'm going to LA. Like, let's let's live the dream. So were you nervous? Was it just something that you're like, I have to do it, otherwise I'm never going to know? I felt like I needed to take the next step. You know, I, I had been playing in bands for a few years, and I, in my mind, that's what you did to succeed. You have to go to New York or, or Los Angeles to succeed. And, and sure, and I wasn't nervous at all. I, it was difficult up there. I was I was really broke, but I'd been taking care of myself since I was little, you know, it was, yeah. you know, I, 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 I was not, I was very much about just kind of, you know, I went there and I got a job and I just dived in and it never occurred to me that I wouldn't be successful. Never occurred to me. At this time, I know like, it, I'm just looking at my notes here, like you co-founded, I think it's like the text tones and later the Go-Go's would use the songs that you've, you wrote during this time. Like to me, everything is a project or everything kind of comes full circle, whether you want to believe it or not. But it's like, you know, when you're writing these songs at this time for this one project, did you ever think you'd use it for another? And then when it, when you did use it, was it kind of like, Oh, cool. Like, was it like a surreal moment for you to be like, Oh geez, these songs that I'm writing, this band that I'm with likes them. We're using them. And when they become on your albums or you use them for, again, being on the charts, did you kind of look back at it now and go like, 
wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Like I'm I'm glad I did that. Well, when when you're writing a song, you're I don't I'm not generally thinking about where it'll go. I'm just trying to make the best song, and I've always been like that. But when the Go Go's, when I was asked to join and and be a permanent member, I I said to them that it was important to me that I be a contributing writer. Of course, they were really happy to have another writer, and it ended up being something the band really needed. I just knew they were a good song. I mean, a good song is a good song, and the Textones weren't a big band. So for the Go-Go's to do one of my songs, even if the Textones had done it, it was, it was great because it meant it would you know sell a lot and get a lot more people hearing it and uh, a lot more reach more people if the Go-Go's did one of my songs. Plus, the main thing was, you know, I was so happy to contribute because I loved the band and I wanted the band to stay successful and stay making records and stay touring. And you can't do that just without continuing to create and produce stuff. So I was really happy to contribute and pull my weight and give something back to the band that had, you know, kind of given me a, a vehicle to achieve my dreams. No, and, and I think that's cool, like the aspect that you said, of course, about writing your own songs and like when they use it and they were like, you know, I, I enjoy the fact because it, it's always like a catch-22 sometimes with bands where some bands are like, well, we already have writers. You're just here to play. Like, you know, like this is our lead writer. Like easy there now. Like don't get ahead of yourself. But like when you do have bands that are embracing that, I'm like, Number one, it makes you feel a little bit of valued because you're like, okay, so they respect my opinion, respect my songwriting process. But at the other point, it does keep a band kind of fresh. You grow together, bouncing ideas off each other. Like it, that's what I think makes anything really in life successful. Like I know with just say podcasting on the side, like if there's only one person involved, you're only getting one person's opinion, one person's triumphs and fails. But if there's other people like, why don't you try this differently? Why don't you do this? Like, how come, why don't we get this person on or go down this path? You're like, okay, cool. Like it, it gives you a little bit of longevity in a sense because it keeps you grounded in the sense that you got to respect other people's opinions and their process. But at the same time, um, it's almost like the more the merrier and the more that you can go around, the more wealth for everybody. I, I want to talk about that because of course, going to the Go-Go's, that was in, I believe 1980, you joined that band. And the interesting story that I thought that I would never be able to do, and this is like full kudos to you for doing it, but you didn't have much time before you debuted to learn all the songs, all the chords, and, you know, not a lot of rehearsal time. I think you said it was like about, I think it was like four hours or four days when you learned a song, and it was like two practices before you made a debut on New Year's Eve. Like, were you nervous? Were you just like uh, gung-ho, setting your mind to get it done? Yeah, I wrote the prologue to my book is about that experience because it was so intense and uh, I really wanted to do a great job. I, by the time I started learning the songs, I really liked the band and I hoped that I would not be temporary and that I would get to stay. So um, I, I was nervous about playing because it was sold out show. Uh, I'd done, I had more experience really than, than the people in that band, but they had more experience being super popular um there was the you know it was eight shows each one is sold out and i'd never experienced anything like that where night after night two shows a night sold out it was incredible and it was pretty much 
you know, it was all I ever wanted up until that moment. And uh, yeah, it, it was nerve wracking, but it didn't mean I couldn't. I mean, I wasn't so nervous that I that I was afraid. I mean, nervous is just, you know, that it's important to you. That's what I look at nervous as. It just means it's important to you. You know? Yeah, and like again, you had you know albums there, like of course, "Can't Stop the World," "Vacation," "Head Over Heels," and I, I kind of want to mention this, like not in a in a rude way or a mean way, but like you know, I heard "Head Over Heels," but I grew up on the Disney Channel, so I grew up watching like you know, uh, just say even Stevens, the Amanda Show, and I think it was like "Fill the Future," and I think Ali and AJ did a cover of like "Head Over Heels," and Disney would play it. And for and again, as a kid, if you've never heard the original song, I've actually had people come up to me when I was smaller and be like, did you hear Allie and AJ's new song? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it sounds really good. And then you'd hear it and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a cover. They're doing a cover of that song. And to me, it was just kind of interesting because there are people that will even grow up today that you'll listen to someone else's cover, like someone that was famous in the 90s or and they're doing it today. And uh, someone will come up to you and be like, do you ever hear her beat it? And you'll be like, yeah, I did. What are you talking about? It's like, yeah, this guy made it famous. I'm like, oh my God, no, that was Michael Jackson. What are you talking about? So I, it has to be, I guess, kind of flattering to you when you do see people do covers of your song, because I guess it, it's kind of touched them in an inspirational way or something that they said, I'm going to sit down and learn this masterpiece. Oh yeah, it's, it's great. I, I love when anybody does any song that I've written. It's exciting. During talk show, I read there was some difficulties and then the band broke up, of course, in 1985. Like what happened there and how did you guys reconcile or I guess join up again? I can never say that word reconcile. Uh, oh, there you go. Uh, but because there have been a, a lot of times where it's like bands break up, reform, break up and reform. Like what happened, if you don't mind me asking here for this to kind of just go west or go, yeah, Go, yeah, I guess go west or go south. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's fairly well-documented part of the Go-Go's story. We, we broke up. Jane Weedland left the band, and she was a key member, and we tried to go on. I moved to guitar. We hired a new bass player. We played a few giant shows at in Brazil at Rock and Rio, but our guitarist, Charlotte, had a very serious drug problem, and... Belinda wasn't real happy anymore and pe people were burned out and weren't having fun. And there had been a time where it became evident that the songwriters were making a lot more money than the other people that didn't write songs and didn't feel fair to, to some of the band members and made them, you know, not enjoy it as much. So there's a lot of factors, but, you know, we were also... Once, if everybody's not into it, it's not working anymore. You, you can't make somebody be into it, you know. You, you just can't do it. So I, I thought it was stupid. I wanted to keep going. I wanted to take a break or take a year off or two years off, and I didn't see any reason to break up the band, and I was very upset about it. But, you know, you're just one person. A band is like what everybody wants. You know, if, if one person doesn't want to do it anymore, what are you going to do? Yeah. And, and I, again, I, I totally agree with you because it's great when bands get back together, especially when they can make up for lost times or just figure out their differences. And it's, it's something to the mindset of for someone like myself who grew up with 
Oasis, like I keep on waiting for Oasis to come back around, but like, it's to the point where it's like, geez, you guys are brothers. You're not even getting close to getting along. So it's yeah. nice when band members that maybe aren't even related, it, it kind of makes me laugh at it. Cause geez, you guys are family. You're not getting along. Look at these people over here. They're not family, but they can still find a way or a common ground to come back together. Yeah. And I, I, I want to give it kind of the utmost compliment in a way, because I, I do know, uh, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this up either, but like, you know, there was a time that it was, it seemed like it was really rough because you kind of sued your band members, uh, but in, in fairness, because you were getting left out of the benefits and the profits and even to get that reconciled. I mean, it says a lot about the personalities in the band and everyone involved. If you can still reconcile. The band, the bond between us is much stronger than that. And, Gina sued Charlotte in 1995, and it was a, a terrible thing, and Charlotte had to overcome that. Gina sued her. I, I only sued because they fired me and didn't want to give me my share of what yeah, I exactly. built up for 30 years. I didn't want to sue anybody, but I'm not going to just go away without getting my share of what I've built. And yet, you know, I think the bond is much stronger, and what we have you know, accomplished. And it wasn't, I learned not to take it personally. I, I, I understood that there was a lot of dysfunction and toxicity in the band. And I looked at it more as an opportunity to be with my daughter and to maybe find other things in my life that I was interested in. That's when I started writing my book. A lot of good came from that. It was really painful, but it was also good came out of it too. And I, I ultimately ended up knowing it wasn't me. I, I was the one that it worked on, but I was not the first one that people had tried to kick out. There was a, a very dis, dysfunctional, toxic element in that band that, you know, kind of just seemed to always want something bad. To and so I learned to let that go. And it's just, I happened to be the one it worked on. But yeah, it's all the bond. It's all good now. The documentary really helped us heal a lot, and uh, we, you know, we wrote a new song and released it with the documentary. And we're gonna tour this summer if the pandemic allows for it. So a lot of them, um, uh, you know, we have shared. Uh, we've had a lot of ups and downs, and uh, you know betrayals and people hurting each other but it's managed we've managed to pull it together and it's not you know a cynical person would say oh they just do that for money but it's not really that because the truth is we could be making way more money yeah. than we actually do I mean we hardly ever do anything so it's not just about money it's about more having something that is transcended a long time and, and something that we're proud of. We have a legacy. And it's not like in fairness too. it's not like the way that the kind of media perceives it is always trying to make someone look like uh, the bad person or like, can you believe these guys are doing this or these gals are like cutting each other's throats. But in fairness, as you get older, like I know myself when you're young and you're watching this on TV, you're like, how dare that person do that? Or geez, can't you all get along? But as you get older, like everything's a little bit about the business side. And, you know, even you're, you could give a, a top 10 of your favorite bands and I guarantee you at least five or six of them have either had a falling out, something that happened. Like for myself, full disclosure, like 
I grew up with the Backstreet Boys and I thought like these guys are inseparable. But when you watch documentaries like the ones that you have or theirs or um, even watching like Family Matters or Boy Meets World, like TV shows, once you get to the nitty gritty or seeing behind the scenes, yeah, they have falling outs. Yeah, there's people that are like, I, I've only worked with this person for season five or season six because I was, I had to. But once this happened, like we had a falling out, but yes, we reconciled and everything's fine. But you get a lot of respect for people who don't let it linger, I guess, or don't hold it over you. It's not going to stop the world. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's all going to be okay. Just figure it out. And uh, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, of course, about hopefully when the pandemic ends, that you guys are going to be touring again. Cause that in that, in a sense, it's not just I'll talk it's actions as well. You're basically saying like, yeah, we've figured it out and now we're happy to tour again. Well, we also played in 2018. We did some shows and we did, we, we've been doing things. We just don't tour a lot. You mentioned it earlier, all I ever wanted. You kind of put the pun in there in, in the question, but when you were growing up, uh, did you ever think you were actually going to, number one, write a book and have this much to kind of put in this book? Because I know myself, 29 years old here, I think about writing a book and I'm like, oh, I'm going to call it Three Buses because that's how long it took me to go to a university and I'm going to make up a story about my disability, like not make up a story, but tell a story about my disability and forming a podcast. But like at the same time, like who's going to buy a 29 years old book when like, I'm not famous. I'm not well known all over the universe, but I, did you ever think of that when you were writing your book? Like, Oh, people are going to love my stories. Uh, I'm going to put some details in here that not a lot of people know. Cause I know when you're doing other hits to promote the book, I was actually kind of intrigued when you told the story about, um, the plane ride, how you went on a, like you got offered to go on a plane ride. And the first night you were like, I'm not doing that. There's no way things can go wrong. And then the second night you go on it, something does actually go wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I felt like I had to be a good writer. I, even though I was in a big band, I'm not a really big celebrity. I'm not the most known person in the go-go. So I knew I had to, it had to be written in a way that was compelling and that was, you know, some, some writers, you just like their book. You don't like their book because they're famous. You yeah. know, I've read lots of memoirs from people that weren't famous, but they wrote a great book about something in their life, just like what you're talking about. I mean, Mary Carr, who wrote The Liars Club, huge bestseller. It's just about a girl growing up in Texas with an alcoholic dad. It's a fantastic book. You know, Cheryl Strayed Wild. She she did a big hike and found herself, and it's a fantastic book. You know, none of these so many memoir writers are not celebrities. I, I prefer those stories than, you know, a lot of a lot of celebrity books. They, they just seem like they're just kind of telling you, I don't know, just all the things that all the famous people they met or all the things they did. And uh, so I, I knew that my book had to just be very honest and real and, and just tell it like it is. And I thought it was a good story and I did the best I could. And I knew that I had to write you know write really well because I was looking at it more like these kind of memoirs not like oh I'm a big star and everybody wants to know about me you know but that wasn't how I how I approached it at all that's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight our thanks to Kathy Valentine for coming on to the show remember you can find past present and future episodes on TobinTonight.com Spotify or iTunes 
follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying thank you for listening and good night. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.